is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Right then, I'm travelling this week, so a slightly different format. I've got a longer interview with someone, but no one in the studio talking about it. Over the last few weeks, I've been talking to various experts about what company culture should look like, asking whether we can actually design it. This week's guest is someone who's helped to do that, who's created a culture, written it down and built it from the ground up. I'm talking with Patty McCord. This is someone who the Harvard Business Review said redesigned human resources, HR. She helped write what the chief operating officer of Facebook called the most important document to come out of Silicon Valley. Patty McCord is a really big deal. Patty's a provocateur. The chat I had with her is fascinating because she's prepared to say a lot of things that many people would sort of consider unsayable. She challenges us to really get totally honest. To give a bit of context, Patty was the chief talent officer at Netflix. So we all know Netflix. Patty worked there for 14 years. The chief talent officer role was their way of describing the top person in HR. And during her time there, herself and Reed Hastings, the CEO, published a document which became something of a phenomenon. She made it clear to me she didn't want to take the credit for the work and she was jointly responsible for everything that happened on culture there. But during her time... A PowerPoint document was published uh, by the CEO about Netflix culture, depending on what version you look at. It's about 127 slides of what she will say is pretty boringly formatted text. And in an act, a lot of people would probably style as something trendy like radical transparency. The Netflix CEO, Reed Hastings, uploaded it to the internet, probably trended on LinkedIn for years. It was a document about Netflix culture that they allowed anyone to come and read It was downloaded and viewed millions and millions and millions of times. Now, whatever you think about it, it's the most fascinating thing you can read about a company trying to write down their culture. Type Netflix culture document into a search engine and it'll come up with this as the top result. Patty and the document make a really big distinction between values, which she sees as those sort of wretched, meaningless words that appear on the wall of offices, and behaviours. So she says, behaviours are the things that you can truly observe. Before we jump into the chat, I thought I'd give you three examples of what the slides say. So, firstly, Netflix say a great workplace is stunningly talented colleagues around you. That's not a, it's not espresso machines, it's not sushi lunches, it's not parties. They say it's working with the very best people. They say they give managers a test. If someone resigns to you today, would you fight to keep them? And if you wouldn't fight to keep someone then right now they should pay that person to leave. And they describe this. They say, we will pay a generous package for someone to leave today. One of the starkest tests of what you think of the document is on slide 34. It's slightly abbreviated because it's a bullet point, but I'll quote it here. It says, sustained B-level performance. That's the grade, right? So that's getting a B. Sustained B-level performance, despite A for effort, generates a severance package. Man, that's right. You're trying your best. You're getting an A for effort. And you get a B for the outcome. And you'll be paid to leave. If you wanted some final proof that this document wasn't for everyone, this culture wasn't for everyone, then their vacation policy is one of the main reasons. And the document says there's no vacation limit. What that specifically means is that while there's nothing written down, in fact, uh, you shouldn't necessarily feel obliged to take vacation. 
Patsy also makes that pretty clear in our discussion now. Now, let's play the chat with Patsy. I want to be clear, and I'm sure she want to be clear, that while she worked at Netflix for 14 years, her views do not represent the views of Netflix. And she was insistent that the document was a collaboration. She's an incredible person. Let's hear Patty. Thank you for joining me today, Patty. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that you're here. You, I, I think it's fair to say you're a bit of a legend in Silicon Valley. H- how did you end up posting a 124-page slide document on the web? When I first started working with Reed at Netflix, we decided that we would write things down about our culture. It was just kind of a weird quirk that he had because we had worked together at another company and the culture was kind of meh. So what we thought we'd do is we'd just write it down and we would share this slide deck. It was an onboarding kind of document. And so we would write it and we'd talk about it and then we'd talk to our executive team about it. Then we'd talk to the extended leadership team about it. And then we would talk about it probably twice a year at some offsite. So it was very collaborative. Each chapter is built on the chapter before. Reeds came to me one morning. So, so we started writing it in 1997. And in 2008, we were driving to work together one day because we carpooled together and he said hey I met this woman last night with this really cool company and she can publish PowerPoint slides on the web and I said wow that's pretty cool what do you think people will publish and he said I put out the deck no amazing <laughs> totally and I said you can't do that and he said why not and I said well first of all it's the ugliest document known to humankind I mean I don't think at the time the fonts were even the same chapter after chapter and I said Reed you're going to scare away all of our candidates and he said, only the ones we don't want. Because it's sort of like the Gangnam style of LinkedIn, isn't it? It's sort of like, I think it's been shared 15 million times. It's sort yeah. of the you trending know, topic of... A couple things about it. One of them was it changed the way we interviewed 100% in 24 hours. Because all of a sudden, everybody was reading it before they came in to talk to us. And we started having really deep conversations right off the bat. Instead of, you know, tell me what you're good at. Tell me what you could do differently. We would say, you know, somebody come in and go, what's no time off? How does that work, right? And so it was just a great way for us to get started. And I think one of your questions is also about the values, the part that we wrote at the beginning about the values. So... What I wanted to do was not write down aspirational values. I wanted to write down behaviors. I wanted to say, if you're honest, I better see you doing it. (laughs) And if you're dishonest, then the culture should punish that, right? And so that particular part of the culture deck, when I was there, we we rewrote that seven times. So that is specifically the part where, I mean, you say that quite often values are these things that are sort of put on the reception wall of companies, but they're not truly the things that are valued in the company. And so you list the things that, are these the seven things, the seven things that are valued in a company? Yeah, I wanted to write down things that people said and did. I often describe to people, um, you should be able to make a movie of it. Right? I should be able to walk in and say, wow, that, that person is being really transparent and candid. Um, they're saying what they believe. Because the, the overall feeling of the deck, really, a feeling of philosophy, as soon as you read it, you think, well, it's basically just treating people like grown-ups. And so you realise in hindsight that, you know, a lot of the way companies treat us is like this adult-child relationship. Yeah, and, and I don't even think we would treat our children that badly. You know, honestly, it's not really even a healthy adult-child relationship. And I think the other thing that's very appealing about the deck to people is that it's just logical. There's nothing really crazy innovative in there. It's just that it's true. And it's the stuff that people don't say. They don't 
say, they say, we want to do an anonymous engagement survey because we believe engaged employees are empowered and contribute more to the bottom line. But they don't measure it. <laughs> and, they do, and it's anonymous. You know, how do you know if somebody's not engaged if they're anonymous? And instead of that, it's just sort of saying, here's the truth, right? We hire you to do a job and sometimes you work really hard on that job and then it's over. And then you move on and we move on and that's healthy and that's okay. And oh, by the way, when you're here, it's not that confusing. And tell me this, I think one of the things that people find refreshing stroke alarming about it is it's very decidedly when you read it, this culture isn't for everyone, is it? It's you read this and you're either either your heart quickens because you're scared by it or your heart quickens because you're exhilarated by it. But some of the things in there you're really candid about, you say you might do a okay job and we're going to pay you off to leave. You know, like yeah. there's no room. You know, that that one is that particular slide is a little bit provocative to push the edge of it. Honestly, more often what happens in companies is one of two things happens. Either you become less interested in the work as it evolves. So I just was I just had breakfast with a Netflix alumni the other day. You know, his whole life pattern is the same where he really is crazy in love with technology when it's greenfield, you know, and it's like nobody else has ever thought of that solution. And once he figures it out, he gets bored. And, you know, he's great at raising a team and, uh, you know, putting together a team and And so, you know, what my advice to him was just sort of recognize that a really good and healthy pattern of yours and just don't worry about finding the company you're going to be at for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that really comes out on the when you read through the articulation of the culture. I think you even use the words, you know, we're we're a. Uh, a team, not a family. And it's that sense yeah. that, you know, a realistic expectation that you probably won't get buried at your current job. That's right. And I think that's just the wave of the future. For one thing, we live longer, we're healthier, we work longer by and large, right? And we're just going to see, particularly in technology, because it moves so fast. So I have to tell you, I was doing an interview with another person the other day who said, well, you know, the stuff you say is really um, trans." Transformational and it's really great, but it. But what do you say to companies who, um, you know, have done things the way they always have and are much more traditional and much more rule bound? And I said, well, you know, people can choose to do whatever they want to do. I just don't like the lies that we tell people, like that they'll have lifetime employment. And I said, you know, that hasn't been true for decades. And he said, well, you know, it's pretty recent. And I said, well, how do you how do you define recent? He goes, well, we probably that probably stopped being true in the 80s. I said, it's 2016. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's say every 30 years or so we shake it up. <laughs> Did people, because you said that it transformed the approach of candidates coming to the company for interviews, did it affect the attitude of the people who were working there? For, for a start, you know, there's one thing that articulates really clearly. It says if you're a, a long-term, high-performing candidate and you have a, a bad time, we're going to give you a pass for the short term, but long-term we're not carrying you. And I I wondered how people who were long-term employees would read that. You know, it 
it's so much of all of this is a matter of circumstance in any company. So sometimes when businesses grow, they grow because they scale, right? So you're serving 100,000 customers and now you're going to serve 10 million. And that, that ability to scale and then the understanding of working at a much, much larger scale usually takes somebody with significantly more experience at bigger scale. So sometimes people can't, you know, can't make that curve fast enough. It's not that they can't do it over time. It's that the time frame gets shorter. Sometimes it's that people realize that their sweet spot, what they love to do is work in a company with 150 people. And they don't like it when it's 5,000. It's not fun anymore. It's a very different company. 10,000 person company. Global companies are different. What usually happens from my 30 years of experience in HR is that the circumstances either change for the person or the circumstances change for the business. Good or bad on both ends. I'll give you a story from the deck, from interviewing on the deck. Interviewing a guy from uh, Apple, uh, this is, you know, probably 10 years ago, and he's a great guy. I really, really like him. And he says, you know, I really like everything about the company and what you're doing, but, you know, there's no time off, this unlimited time off thing. I, I don't know if it's going to work for me. And I said, how come? And he said, well, I'm kind of a workaholic, and I got married last year, and we're about to have our first child. I'm like, that's great. And he said, I don't think I'll be a very good father if I never come home. <laughs> well, there's probably truth in that. <laughs> and he said, so, you know, what are you going to do about that? And I said, about the fact that you got married and have are having a baby? I mean, I don't think I have anything to do with that, right? And he said, yeah, but I without, you know, without the, the time off policy, I'm afraid I won't ever go home. And I said, you know, it sounds like you're more comfortable and more structured than we have here. You should stay. Apple's a great company. If that's what's important to you at this time in your life, right? And this is a guy who probably worked all the time until he got married and was about to have a baby. So his life circumstances changed. So I guess this is the critical thing isn't it because the document and the culture is just far more honest about what a company expects and what a group of individuals get back than than we're used to and so we're, we're used to this notion that you know if a company says anything it'll just be listing more benefits and we, we yeah. don't we don't hear the trade-off in return and it's probably the first time it reads a, a critic might say it reads it's quite neoliberal isn't it it's sort of like hyper capitalism is that fair yeah yeah i think so yeah and I think, and partly it's because, it, it's partly because the founder of the company, Reed Hastings, and so many of the early people were engineers. And, and the reason why I've come to find that employees become cynical about work is that what companies say they are and say that they're going to act like and what they do are two different things, right? Where you're, I, I, I did a talk with a bunch of HR people, I mean, like 500 of them in a room. And I said, how many people in this room have ever laid anybody off? 500 hands go on. I said, how many of you have ever laid off a family member? Zero. And I'm like, how many of you went to work last week and at some point said we're family you know yeah. <laughs> and, and half of the people are like you know squir squirming in their seats i'm like they're not a family you know we could have another entire interview about corporate speak and hr speak and and how those nonsensical words have crept into our business vocabulary that don't mean anything i mean my, my particular favorite pet peeve is empowerment you know, like you're gonna, I'm gonna get a magic wand and empower you, right? And I tell people, I'm like, you know why we have to empower people? Because we took all their power away. You, you walk in the door with power. You just can't, you either can or can't use it, right? And so. 
the other thing about the Netflix culture that was difficult for people was that the culture is based on results, business results, happy customers. You know, the thing about a subscriber model is they have to keep getting happier all the time because that's how the business works, right? And so the other thing I find particularly, there aren't any companies that aren't internet companies anymore, but our relationship to our customers is much more visceral than it used to be. And so it's not just, you know, the boss tells you what's happening with the revenue and the customer base. You can find out. And so that connection between what you're doing and is the customer happy is much more real and I think that makes things different. That, then when we start talking about family and empowerment and not, you know, it's like, does that make any sense anymore? And tell me this, so when so you're, you're now a, a consultant now and, and people come and seek your advice, so what you found at Netflix was you found the truth for Netflix. You found it, I think you articulate, you know, the only way we're going to succeed in, in one of the most competitive markets in the world as if we're the best we can be. Other companies, how do you, how would they come and find their truths? Presumably their truths and Netflix values are going to be by definition different, aren't they? Yes, they are. And so I do a couple of things with them. One of them is all companies, all groups of people already have a culture. They may not have written it down, but they have ways of behaving and interacting with each other that already exist. And the worst thing companies can do is write down an aspirational document of what they want to be and then not do it. An example, I'm in a very small startup with the CEO of the company, and I said, if you had a perfect company, if you, you could create your dream work environment, what would it be like? And he said, well, I'm an engineer and I love efficiency. I would want it to be like clockwork that would get amazing stuff done with really high quality, you know, at the time that our customers need it most. That's great. So I noticed that we have four pool tables here in this room. He said, yeah, pool's a big deal for us. I said, so let's say you and I were playing pool, and I was about to beat you, and I've never really beat you before, and we've kind of gathered a crowd, and it's five minutes before two, and our staff meeting starts at two, and it's going to take me a half an hour to beat you. What happens? He says, well, I mean, you know, if everybody's watching, well, we got to finish this game. And I said... If you want to be efficient, you got to start things on time, right? So I'm, I'm like, it's not what you say, it's what you do, Absolutely. right? So, and so with, I went to a company not too long ago where when I started digging around about um, who they were, they had very, very clear code of ethics and conduct about the relationships with their customers. And, and I, when I found this document, it's actually on their website, I'm like, here it is. What if you lived this, right? We'll always be honest and transparent with our customers. We'll always be, you know, we'll make it easy for them to interact with our service. We'll make it, oh, what if you did all these things? Is this how you treat each other? Because you have a code of ethics right here. It's right here, written already. And so the second piece of what I advise people to do is, you know, I say, look, you got to do what's right for your business, but you, and you've got to do what's right for the leadership of the company because if they can't walk the talk, right, if they can't do the things they say we should do, then don't do them. And secondarily, don't assume that everybody else has it right. So when I talk to people, they have, you know, all this traditional infrastructure. I'm like, look, if that works for you, it's fine with me. I'm really okay with it. I just don't want you to take it for granted that that's the best way. I think the interesting thing that really comes out of your work is on on the podcast, we've been talking to people about happiness and work culture and almost saying Mm -hmm. that work can be 
uh, inclusive for everyone. And the stuff that comes out of your work, really, is this notion that there is, it's, it's like dating, um, you know, there's a perfect match for you and these other jobs that aren't right for you. So, for example, you know, one of the things that comes out of the discussions we've had is that happiness generally correlates with having a friend at work. So happiness at work correlates with having a friend at work. Whereas I'm getting in the Netflix model, it was more about someone who thrilled in completing the task rather than in the sociability. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really fair. And I don't, you know, um, my son worked for a very classic, uh, you know, it was a San Francisco startup where he had three meals a day and brought in his dog. And, you know, and if he'd come home, he'd coming home for the holidays and he always makes a new cocktail, right? And I said, how'd you get to be such a good bartender? And he said, well, because at my company, whenever they think we need team building, we go to bartending school. He's like, I know six ways to make a Manhattan. <laughs> and, and he's he's since left that company and gone to a different company with very few perks and he's so much happier because he's surrounded by people who are teaching him something and he's you know i i said to him the other day i'm like you love this new job don't you and he said god i do and i'm like i forgot you've never actually been managed before right so he, he said he said yeah i used to spend two of the five days of my week trying to figure out what to do on the other three yeah. So, but so I say. I mean, I, I I believe this in my bones to be true. When you go home from work at night and you tell your pet or your you know significant other or whoever's at home, oh my God, it was an amazing day at work today. It's almost always followed by we did. And no matter what it is you do, it's that sense of accomplishment that that gives people their sense of worth. And I think that when you work around amazing people and you accomplish incredible stuff, I think that's what makes you happy at work. And I don't think you can buy it with craft beer. What you brilliantly described was the fact that normally you start a small dynamic creative company and then as the company yeah. gets bigger, as, as they're trying to, to make standards consistent across no longer 30 people, but 5,000 people. The way that most organizations do that is by introducing more control. And so consequently, the company changes. In fact, you use the phrase in the, in the deck, you say, time to grow up. You know, and, and probably a lot of people who've worked in companies where there's, there's been that uh, mantra, time to grow up. How then did you set about keeping that culture that was focused on we're going to accomplish things? Lots and lots and lots of communication. Um, you have to assume that every single person in the company is capable of reading a P&L and understanding the business. And then the, the business itself, what you're trying to do, what your important things are to accomplish, what makes customer happiness, what the revenue stream is, all those things that most companies reserve for, you know, the top, the elite, only, only the managers can know the important stuff. If you drive that down all levels of the organization, everybody can understand that stuff. It's not that complicated. And so what you want to do is you want to have incredible clarity about what's important, which also includes incredible clarity about what's not important. So, I, you know, strategy isn't what you do. Strategy is what you choose not to do now. So people need to carry what's important in their heads and what's not important. Secondarily, they need to carry a time frame in their head. This is very hard for startups, right? Someday, they'll tell me, someday it'll be amazing. I'm like, well, will you be 70 or 27? I don't know. Help me with the someday, right? 
And then, and then the more context that's also in the deck, the more people can operate using their own brains and their own time frames, right? They're knowing what they need to accomplish. Then they can make responsible choices about what to do. And that collaborative way of working is how businesses move fast, they stay nimble, and they stay informed. The top-down hierarchical management structure, but the problem with it in today's world is it's just too slow. It's not logical anymore, right? When, when so much information is available to people, that the idea of management hierarchy where the senior guys know something the junior guys don't know, it's not necessarily true anymore. I mean, here's a great example. I always think it's crazy when companies get to a certain stage and they decide that they need to put a framework around cost, right? And so they assign somebody in finance. So you have to go to finance to get, you know, an expense approved over $5,000. And all that person knows is what 5000 is. They don't, they don't know, you know, if 5125 pounds is the right way to negotiate that deal. They just know that they can't, they say no after 5000. There's no intelligence in that, right? And it does nothing but slow the thinking people down who are making the decision. Whereas in my experience, if you focus on the results and you focus on the time frame and you focus on quality and somebody makes a bunch of wrong decisions, then they're probably in the wrong job. Or they don't have very good judgment. Right, which yeah. is another thing we we don't talk about in business. The people that are very successful are people that make the right call. They have good judgment. It's maturity. Because one of the things you say is like expenses policy, and and the expenses policy that you operated was do whatever's in the best interest of Netflix. And you give some articulation of that, but it's back to treating people like adults. It's pretty simplistic. Yeah, and what I did at Netflix that was really significantly different was I often say I was the COO of the culture. So let's use the example I just gave you. So instead of having a group of people in the finance organization whose job it was to pretty much say no, we turned that group of people into a group of people whose job it was to report back to the organization what the expenses were. Right? Here's, what you, here's what you said you were going to spend. Here's what you're actually spending. Here's what the trend line is. What's changed in the business? So now it's that actually the average cost of whatever that piece of software is, is $7,000 or pound. Then we may want to change our projections for how much we're going to spend on that next year. Now that's intelligent, effective, collaboration. It's not having somebody have the power to say no. And when you give people the power to say yes, you'd be surprised how responsible they get all of a sudden. There's nobody to point to. Did, did you find people came along and said pretty quickly this wasn't for them? Or how quickly, how quickly were people able to work out whether Netflix culture was for them or not? Well, we try. that's part of what, how we use the culture deck in the interview process. And so we tried to get increasingly better at sort of sussing it out in the interview process. I mean, honestly, it did turn off about 50% of the people that are like, these people are crazy. I don't want to work there. (laughs) But, you know, and and then there were other people who would just self-select out. You know, they would say, "It's it's too unstructured for me. You know, I want to have, I, I, you know, I need, I need more structure to be effective. And so it would, you know, depend. 
Tell me this. It's, it's a few years since you, you left Netflix now. What are the trends you can see about how working life's evolving? Are, are more companies... Look, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg said this is the most important document to come out of Silicon Valley. So there's no, no shortage of admirers for the work that you did pinning down what culture meant. But I've not seen many companies following the Netflix path. And I just wondered well, how you think are. things... Are d- yeah, I mean, I, so I kind of put them into classifications. Um, lots and lots and lots of companies in the early stage startup rules follow all of this stuff because they're in early stage startups and they're kind of chaotic in it. The medium-sized companies, they bristle because um, as soon as they're going to be a public company or they get a significant amount of cash, you know, an influx with an investor, then the investors all came from pretty traditional companies typically, and they say, you know, you better grow up and start having some rules now. It's time for handbook. It's time for, you know, policies and procedures. It's time to start doing the things that, the way everybody else does. They get afraid Right. Yeah. So when I work with those companies, I say, again, you can choose all of those rules and regulations, but choose them, right? And make sure that when you're choosing them because we've got to protect ourselves because our employees might sue us, remember that most of these are the same people that we thought were fabulous five minutes ago. I get invited a lot to come and speak about innovation. And when I talk to very large companies about innovation, I'm like, the most innovative things that you do is stop doing stuff that doesn't matter. Not doing anything differently. It's just stopping the stuff that you've always done that just wastes time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of your questions was about what's a generous severance. Yeah. Honestly, here's the logic I used. If uh, you're working, you and I are working together and you're working on a technology that we're phasing out and we both know that we're phasing the technology out and we both know what the time frame is. Happens all the time then I could put you on a performance improvement plan, which is what most companies would do. And every week I'm going to meet with you, and in writing I'm going to prove that you're incompetent. You're not incompetent. Yeah. Technology's changing, right? And we're going to do that for 90 days. And by about the 45th day, you realize what a scam this is. Yeah. And you're mad, yeah. right? So people sue, sue companies because they're mad, right? Not only are you mad, but everybody else in the team feels like this is unfair, as it is, right? And so what I would do instead was I would sit down and say, hey, Bruce, you know, you've seen it coming, I see it coming. <laughs> so yeah. instead of spending the next 90 days in misery, why don't I pay you three months and let's talk about what you're going to do now? Right, so it's just a straightforward chat that saves you the dancing around. Yeah, and, and you're doing all that stuff to protect yourself from the employee that's going to sue you. But the reason they're going to sue you is that you treat them unfairly and they're mad. So don't do that. Yeah. And, you know, those employees, they work there, they see it. People, and no one wants to fail. So that's how I made my um, guidelines around generous severance was like, well, if I went through the normal process, what would that take? Let's see, if you're an executive, it might take a year, right? Or a couple of months, or I just used what made sense to me, and we just had the straightforward conversations and gave people a cushion, and they left. And, you know, then people get sad about it because they don't want to, they want to be part of it going forward, but they get it. 
it's logical. I mean, there's there's what we say we do, and then what we really actually do. And what's and what's what makes crazy about it is that we do the right thing under the table, and we say the wrong things out loud. Like we use words like, uh, "Did you get fired? Did you get sacked?" Right? Like there are, there are weapons involved. Nobody gets strangled. And I do a lot of talks with women's groups, and I say, "Look, if you want to know what you're worth." Go interview. Right? Engagement doesn't mean they put a ring on it. Yeah. <laughs> when you go interview, you're not cheating on your husband. You're finding out what you're worth in the market, and you should do that all the time. And, and since you've left uh, and, and you've you've been consulting, uh, I think it's fair to say you're writing a book now. Is that right? So, so I am. Wh- what do you think you'll cover in that? What will you talk about in the book? Pretty much the stuff that you and I have talked about this morning, which is provocatively saying, well, let's just stop and think about that. Is that, in fact, true? And and what I mostly want, I, I don't want to be completely prescriptive, but I want to be able to say, really, would you apply no thinking whatsoever, no metrics, no deliverables to any other part of your business? And why would we do it with people? So what I learned by being at Netflix all those years, I learned from the people I was surrounded with and when you invent something that doesn't exist, you don't look around and go, let's just do it a smidge better than everybody else already does. Never do that, right? And so the innovator's mind says, what are we trying to accomplish here? So, for example, in my book, I'm going to talk about if you believed that feedback resulted in better or more consistent performance, which most of us do, right? If I say, Oop, do that, no, don't do it that way, do it this way, then you're going to do it, quote, the right way over time, right? So let's say we both believe that. Yeah. Um, and you said, I want to create a system where people get really good feedback so that they can be a better performer. Have you ever come up with the annual performance review? <laughs> I'm going to tell you once a year in reflection what you did or didn't do right after it's too late to correct you. What would you replace it with? All regular feedback, you know, more something more often. I'm experimenting with a bunch of my companies, you know, yeah. at least quarterly. You know, most people have meetings with their management regularly. I'm just like talk, turn one of them ever on a regular basis into performance feedback, both to and from. Because the thing about feedback, particularly difficult feedback, the reason why people suck at it is they don't practice. Right? You're only going to have that conversation once a year. And I'm going to say, hey, by the way, Bruce, you remember six months ago, you really sucked. I didn't <laughs> mention it. <laughs> I didn't mention it, but now here it is in writing, and I'm going to put it in your employee file. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's not, talk to, and I've learned a lot since I've left because I do a lot of talks with um, sports coaches. But if you talk to somebody who's, I, I did this talk with this guy who is like the winningest National Hockey League, American Hockey League coach in history, right, Scotty Bowman. And yeah. he said, well, you know, we have an 80-game season, and every 10 games I sit down with every player, and I pull all their stats, and they do a self-evaluation. I do an evaluation. I ask the other players and the other coaches what they think, and we work on a plan for the next 10 games. So the moderator of the discussion says to me, you know, you've been, you're famous for hating the annual performance review. What would you do instead? And I looked over at him and I'm like, what he said? And, you know, it, 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 it's brilliant. I mean, I've learned all kinds. And, and you know, the, when you talk to those guys, the people who coach professional sports teams, 
That's the interesting takeaway for me. It's like if this one, I think the, the one thing that really comes out of the Netflix document is that, okay, this is a very high performance creative industry. However, yeah. the honesty of approach, I think, could be very suited to another sort of business. So it could be our business is relentlessly focused on customer loyalty, customer service, and you could see it being applied to a supermarket chain in the sense that we're yeah. just going to communicate. So it's not the same values in, as in the Netflix document, but our values are about honest communication, and so the things we value are these. And th- for, for me, the takeaway isn't necessarily this, as I've just described it there, this neoliberal Netflix culture, but actually the approach of extreme honesty can sort of work in any business. Extreme honesty coupled with the baseline assumption that people are people in the workforce are adults you expect them to behave that way right and because everyone in the workforce is old enough to be in the workforce you know i do the same thing when i talk to i talk to a, a, a pretty successful millennial based company in san francisco the other day and one of the people in the hr team said to me well you know if we don't take really good care of them and give them everything we want and make them happy then they're going to walk out the door and walk down the street and make more money and have more perks at the next company. And I said, what leads you to believe that's true? She said, well, everyone knows. I'm like, you know, the second time you said that, and it's the hundredth time I've heard it whenever I come to San Francisco, how do you know? Well, everyone knows. I'm like, you know, really, we're not going to have this sentence again. Do you exit you people went the last time somebody left and turned right and got more money and a better bartender, and that's why they left? Is that true? And oh, by the way, if somebody's leaving you because they have better beer, you say goodbye. Okay. Suddenly we're out of time. Amazing. Amazing. Wonderful. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for talking to me today. really interested in hearing your thoughts about this. So tweet me or add me to your professional network on LinkedIn or send me your views um, in the comments below. So um, love to hear your views. Next time we're doing a special on Lean In, the Sheryl Sandberg book. Speak soon.